If you've brought your Bible today, I'd ask you to turn to Acts chapter 16 and verses 11 through 19 today. We're going to be looking at the aspect of what was going on in the life of the establishment of the Philippian church. We're going to look and take an an examination of three specific events that's recorded for us in chapter 16 of the book of Acts as we see the Philippi church be established by three unique encounters that the Apostle Paul and his entourage have with three distinct, differently people, different people that are there. So if you have your Bible there and you're ready, just give me a moment and I will share with you what's going on. I want to share with you, though, as we read the Word, now you'll notice many of you have different devices But here's the the old newspaper. If you remember the town crier that would stand out on the street corner and and the New York Times and other magazines when something significant would happen in life, and you remember the image of the little boy on the street corner holding up the newspaper, World War II has ended, Uh, whatever the significant event, there was always someone there trying to shout out what was going on, and then we would hope that we would find on that newspaper and what was written in the text, we wanted to read all about what was happening. Well, I would argue for us today, we're going to read all about the establishment of the Philippian church and what God was doing as he moved this woman by the name of Lydia from an aspect where she was a very prosperous woman to an area in her life where she took her prosperity and it moved into a place of proclamation as she heard the word of God for herself and began to use all of those abilities that God had given her to proclaim the gospel and minister to the church. What a beautiful image of what was happening. In our sermon today, I want to give you some words. As the the crier would cry out, a good word that could be found in the newspaper, I want to give you four specific words today that you can take. Now, whatever genre you may fall in, whatever category you're listening to this message today, if you're a missionary, you're on, on mission for God, and you have a heart for sharing the gospel, I will promise you, you'll hear a word today from this message about being a missionary for Christ. Perhaps you're a seeker, and you want to know more, much like Lydia did in this passage, and you want to find out who is this God. I promise you, you will hear a word today in our message Maybe you're a righteous person. You've been clothed by the blood of Jesus already. And you're here today wondering, what does this mean for me? And how do I take encouragement from it? I want to share a word for you. And then lastly, I want to share a word from this text that will resonate with every single one of us that are here today. So if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 16, we'll read verses 11 through 15. Follow along in your translation as I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, picking up in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Join me as we pray over this message. So, Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We pray now that your word would ring true in the hearts of every ear that hears what you'd have to say to the church, to the seeker, to the missionary, Lord, and to us all as we proclaim your word. Speak to us now. We ask the Holy Spirit, guide us, comfort us. But Father, convict us of where we need to be challenged. Comfort us where we have challenges in our daily life. 
point us to Christ and his cross of Calvary. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to give you a little history lesson real quick. As I shared with some of our staff earlier, many, many folks that are students of the Word, theologians, don't have access to a lot of the tools that others who do this for a living have access to. Some of them can be quite pricey. So I want to share with you a few images of what was going on. Now, if you have a Bible in the back of it, the last chapter, the chapter of maps, you can find some of these images of Paul's first, second, and third missionary journey. But I want to give you a picture of Philippi for a moment. Now, Philippi was a leading city, and let me share with you a little history for a minute. Philippi was an ancient town which had been renamed by Philip of Macedon in around 360 B.C. You'll see it at the north, northern tip or the top corner of our picture in that image in blue, Philippi. It was a site of a defeat of somebody you may be familiar with, a guy by the name of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar's murderers, Brutus and Cassius, had fled to Philippi, and there they were captured by Antony and Octavian in 42 B.C., The town became a Roman colony. Now, why that's significant for us to understand is because it was a settlement for veteran Roman soldiers who possessed the rights of self-government under Roman law and freedom from taxes. Amen? Can we all move to Philippi? That'd be good, wouldn't it? Further, veterans were settled there after the defeat of Antonio and Cleopatra at Actium in 31 B.C. It was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. If you remember in the text from last week, Paul had seen in a vision that the the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus had revealed to him to go to Macedonia. Now what we see here is one of the first European areas where the gospel is being taken, resonating now in this story about this woman by the name of Lydia, who will then proclaim the gospel. Macedonia was an unusual as a Roman province because it was divided into four sub-provinces, of which Philippi belonged to the first, although its capital was Amphipolis. Now, in this message, I want to share with you, as I opened up with, a word for the missionary. Now, what is that word for the missionary? Point number one of our message is the fact that we have to start life with a journey. Point number one is the fact that we have to start life with a journey. There's a few more other images here that we're not going to look at today. Uh, But I want to share with you, number one, intentionality. Now, if you think about that word, what does it mean to be intentional? I would argue every one of you started your morning with a level of intentionality about what you were doing today. You woke up, you had your breakfast, you had coffee, or maybe your coffee was your breakfast in my case. You got dressed and you had on your calendar, you were going to come here to worship God with God's people, much like Lydia, who was seeking a place on the Sabbath to worship outside of the city near a river. There was intentionality, but notice what Paul was doing. Not only Paul, but Luke, Timothy, and Silvanus, or Silas, who was with him. Notice in verse 11, so setting sail from Troas... We made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in the city for several days, some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, what we see in the intentionality of these disciples was everything that they were doing had a purpose. They weren't just going about lollygagging. They were using the giftings that God had given them where they were. Now, it's interesting. We begin to see details from Luke's account as he was writing this history of what the Acts of the Apostles is all about, recording the early history of the church, and we start to see details that only 
Someone who was familiar with maritime navigation, someone with great detail is recording. And that gives us authenticity as to what the author knew, that he had a firsthand account. Notice he says they were together, that we made a direct voyage. Luke was with Paul and Silas and Timothy on this aspect. But every point of their voyage was to take them somewhere that God had intended them to go. Do we have that kind of intentionality in our our life? That every job that we hold, every position of responsibility, every opportunity that we get to go and do something, that we're seeking a way to honor God. Notice, firstly, that they shared the gospel wherever it took them. They went to lots of different places, but they shared the gospel wherever they went. They knew with intentionality that as a missionary, as a disciple, as an apostle, as a believer, they were responsible for proclaiming the good news. They didn't put on their calendar. Notice here we don't know why they didn't share the gospel in Samothrace. We don't know that they didn't. We don't know that they didn't share the gospel in Neapolis. We don't know any of those things, but I bet you if we know anything about the character of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, while they were on that ship, they were having gospel conversations. They might have even broke out their three-circle wristband and started sharing it with the guy that was putting the supplies down below the ship. They might have broke out the Romans road and started to begin to explain that while the captain was navigating. You could see Paul there explaining what he wrote to the Roman church that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Imagine the conversations that were taking place on the ship as Paul was going from town to town. Now think a little bit more creatively now. Think about the conversations from the seeds that were planted that would later give fruit to believers in Christ Jesus as those shipmates became disciples of Christ. And now as the ship landed from port to port and port all around the Mediterranean, all around the Aegean Sea, all around wherever it went, and now those disciples, when they'd get off the ship, they went into the marketplace to have gospel conversations. Folks, the, the, the multiplication effort of what we see going on there was intentional, and it often has repercussions that are far beyond what we even think about. They sought out an opportunity And notice that it takes effort. Now, many of us drove to here this morning in a very nice vehicle. Nice meaning at least it started. We'll just level that as the the, the qualification. We didn't ride our horse. We didn't walk here today. Maybe some of you did, but that was probably by your choice. Most of us have more than one chariot in our driveway. Different forms of chariots that we ride to come or to go somewhere. Imagine having to get on a ship and sail across the waters to be intentional about sharing the gospel. Imagine getting on a ship in the Americas and traveling it all the way to Burma. Weeks and weeks below ship amidst the storms and the turbulent waters before GPS and sonar and radar tracking and Doppler radar would tell us where the storm was brewing on the ocean. Imagine the travel. They were seeking opportunity, but folks, I'll share with you, just like it is today, it takes effort for us. If you're a missionary, if you're burdened with the gospel, Don't think for a moment it's going to be easy to take the gospel to somebody. It takes effort and intentionality, no matter where we are, no matter what we do. Thirdly, though, the group spoke. Notice it wasn't just Paul dominating the conversation. Notice it wasn't just the, the apostle Paul himself that was the primary voice. Now, God, we know, was using Paul in a very unique way to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But notice the scriptures tell us that they went outside where they began to spoke. Look at the very last sentence in verse 13. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. 
You notice the team effort and what was going on there? It's not just the Sunday school teacher that shares the word in the class. It's the whole class that comments and speaks and discusses and chews on it and works it out and pounds it on the anvil of righteousness to make it something to where we can apply it to our daily life. Folks, it was a group effort that Silas and Luke and, Barna- and, and Paul and Timothy were there together. They were all speaking to the women. Imagine all the conversations that were happening. It wasn't just one guy doing it all. They drew strength from one another. They presented the gospel, notice lastly, immediately. They didn't wait. Now, they had been in the the city for some days, but they went outside the gates looking for a place. Now, why did they go outside the gates? Well, what we believe by history is it took at least 10 Jewish men to form together before a synagogue could be established in a given area. In order for that synagogue to be developed, to grow, and to to be built, there had to be at least 10 men in the city that were Jews, that were believers, that wanted to gather together. And one of them would generally take up a leadership role as the the head rabbi and begin teaching. Now, you've got to think of a synagogue, folks, like our Sunday school class in the Baptist church. All right, I'll make that correlation. It wasn't the temple, the Shekinah glory, where God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. A synagogue was a specific location where a Jew would go to learn the scriptures, to learn and be developed. See, there was intentionality and discipleship as well, even amongst the Jews. But here, the group, Paul and, and his, his folks that were with him, understood that there was no synagogue in Philippi. We have no record of it until later on. There are some archaeological evidences of one that was built, but not during this time frame. So Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas went outside the city. Now, I've got a map. I don't know if you can go back to it, but if you'll go to the third picture on that second slide, I want to show you just an image of Philippi for a minute. I meant to show it at the beginning, but notice on the right-hand corner of the slide, you'll see to the river. Y'all see that? Uh, You may be able to see it at home. I'm not sure. But that's kind of what Philippi looked like during that time frame. And they went outside of the city to this place by the river. Now, why would the women grow, go to a river area? And why would they know that that would be an area and a location where people would be praying? Well, part of the Jewish ritual was to cleanse. And in order to do the ritualistic practices of the Jew, they would have to be somewhere near water in order to cleanse themselves, to cleanse and follow the practices of Judaism So Paul, knowing that there wouldn't be a synagogue in Philippi, they went outside to the closest area where there would be water for to allow them to practice their faith. And that's where they encounter this woman by the name of Lydia and those that are there as well. Let me share this with you as a main point for the missionary here. If you have a heart for the gospel, or maybe you've been thinking about it. Here's a point that was told with me years ago that resonates still to this day. If you don't share the gospel where you are, there's no reason to go somewhere to share the gospel. you got to start where you're at. God will grow your faithfulness by starting right where he has planted you. What a wonderful image. We've got to be intentional where we are, and every step of our journey as we go through life, different jobs, different careers, different seasons of life with raising our children, all those things that, that, that we encounter as we move in and out of one season to the next, as we transition in our growth, We must be intentional in every season that God gives us. Be intentional where you are. If you're a missionary, you feel called to the mission field, be the best missionary your church has ever known. Start right there in your own backyard. But secondly, I want to share a word for the seeker. When I say seeker, I mean much like Lydia here that we will see ourselves. Look at verse 14 with me for a minute. 
And here's the truth that we know, that if we seek God, you will find him. Now, God is not the God. Now, I thought about this as an illustration when we were growing up. Remember how we used to play hide-and-seek when we were a kid? Now, we don't hide anymore unless we're just trying to get away from our kids because we want some quiet time, right? We learn how to hide from them. But when we were a child, the goal of hide-and-seek was to not be found. How many times we think God is that way in our life? How many times people who think they want to seek God look at God as though we're playing hide-and-seek as children, where when we seek him, he runs the other direction? Folks, that's not how God works. God tells us truly in his word, truthfulness, that if you seek me, you will find me. And we know that because he has given us his word. Let me share with you a, a little bit of truth about this. Look at verse 14 for a minute. What was going on with this woman by the name of Lydia? One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Now, one, there were others there. But notice the scripture says that one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. Now, we pretty much presume that Lydia was, was not Jewish. She might have been a proselyte, a female proselyte, but we know that she was worshiping a God, but she really didn't know the God that Paul is fixing to introduce her to. In the theological world, we teach that there's this thing of general revelation and special revelation. And the general revelation is this, much like Lydia understood, that when we open our eyes in the morning and we see the little canary land on the fence post, we see the sun rise in the east and cast its light and vision, we feel the heat pierce our skins as we stand in the sunshine, we see the general revelation of God in motion as he has put the world into creation and created each of its days. That's what we would call the general revelation, that we know there is a creator, at least there has to be. I would argue often when we have a conversation with an atheist. Now here's, a, here's an issue, this is free by the way, it's not in my notes. An atheist says there is no God. Y'all with me? There is no God. They know for a fact there is no God. Now, I think we can all conclude that we as a society have more knowledge today than we had in the 19th century. We know things like bacteria that we didn't know during the Civil War that caused deaths upon deaths of injured soldiers. We know we have diseases today that can only be cured by certain things that in the 19th century was wiping out entire civilizations that today we get shots for, and it's no longer a problem. So if that's the case and we can understand the logic and reason behind that, isn't it safe to say what we know to be true is finite, it's a small amount, and all that can be known is outside that little circle of what we know? So therefore, Mr. Atheist, I argue, how do you know that you know there is no God? So let's move to a different category. Let's call you an agnostic, because we can agree that everything there is to know has not yet been found out. Amen? We can agree on that common point that all the knowledge in the world, in the solar system, all the things that NASA is exploring as we try to put a man on the Mars, we already know there are things we don't know yet. Could it be possible, Mr. Atheist, that you just haven't learned enough to realize there is a God? So let's move into a different category, and let's move into what we call an agnostic See, with an agnostic, I can have a healthy conversation. Because an agnostic at least acknowledges, I don't know if there is or if there isn't a God. You see, they, they watch the same sunrise that you and I watch. They see the same moonset that you and I watch. They see the same child born that you and I watch. The general revelation of God, and they're asking themselves, is there a God? 
Now, Lydia has moved into a different category here in verse 14. Lydia has become a worshiper of this God, much like Yahweh, what the Israelites worship, but yet she didn't have a full understanding until in just a few minutes. What do we know about Lydia? Number one, we know that Lydia knew about God. You see, agnostics know about God as well. Atheists think they know that there is no God. I believe the the proverb says, the fool says there is no God. But the agnostic says, well, I'm not sure if there is or there isn't. Lydia here had a knowledge that there was a God. She had been learning. Matter of fact, she was seeking God. Lydia knew to seek God. She was outside the city walls by the river where the Jews would go to wash themselves and to worship and to pray together, being no synagogue. Matter of fact, we can go further and say that there probably was no worshiping men at all around. Because notice who the disciples find at that area. They find a group of women. There's no men there that we have a conversation recorded with. Paul doesn't address the man that there that would be providing the leadership over the group. It's all women. Reminds me of what Deborah would say. Can there be no, are there no good men to be found? In this area, there were no men here. So Paul is sharing the gospel. Lydia knew to seek God where she was. Lydia knew when she heard God's word. Amen. How many of you remember when you heard God's word for the first time and conviction through the Holy Spirit came into your life and you knew there was something different about what you just heard that gripped your soul to the point of a decision to follow Christ? You remember that moment? Man, I feel it's like them bittersweet chocolates we got in our pantry. Sometimes we forget what they taste like because we haven't had one in a while. There's my call from my wife to make some chocolate chip cookies, amen? But that's what it's like. Sometimes we go through our Christian walk and we lose the excitement of what it was like that first week where we were brand new babes in Christ and the whole world seemed to open up to us now. Things started to make sense in our life. Life seemed to be sweeter. Every breath we took was a gift from God and we recognized it as such. The fact that a sinner such as I have been forgiven because of the love of Christ Jesus. That someone could love me so much that he would say, everything you did that was an abomination before me, you're forgiven. Folks, that's what it was like when we first heard God's word pierce our heart and we surrendered, repented of our sin and we accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Folks, what a beautiful sweetness. Man, I call that to our remembrance so we don't forget where we've come from. But we remember that God loves me even more today. He'll love me even more tomorrow. Meaning more being I experience it even more and more deeper the longer I walk with him, the longer I trust him. Lydia knew when she heard God's word that Paul was telling her something different that she had not quite heard before. And it gripped her to the point of Lydia not only knew about God, she not only sought God, she not only heard God's word, but check this out. Lydia knew Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Lydia now knows Jesus. Paul had introduced her to the Savior, the one that all the Old Testament scriptures prophesied, that his side would be pierced. He'd be bruised for our transgressions. The iniquities of us would be upon his shoulders. Man, what a beautiful image to come to that fullness of realizing that I not only know about a God, but now I get to have a personal encounter with him. Folks, it rocked Lydia's world. It changed who she was. Now, you might think for a moment, let's talk about Lydia a little bit more. What were some of the challenges that Lydia might have had from the scripture can we find out? Well, number one, we see that she was a fairly wealthy businesswoman. 
She had an understanding of business. She was a dealer in fine, fine purple. We know we see that right there in verse 14. She was a woman, though, in a man's world during this time. She was encountering hostility from other merchants. You can imagine being a woman of stature, being a woman of wealth, being a woman of prosperity, and her having to deal with the other men in the markets as they looked down upon her. Now, what we don't see is why Lydia was this woman, why she took on this role. What we think some, some may propose is the reason for it, that Lydia, we know she has a household. For in verse, The last verse of this text will tell us that her entire household was baptized. Many believe that Lydia was widowed at some point. She had a husband, had started a family. Her husband is dead now. Now, imagine this. She's a woman in a man's world. She's running a business, probably out of necessity. Maybe her husband had started it. Now she's taking it on as the heir. It's been passed on to her. She has her children to worry about. And now she's the dealer of fine purple, having to deal with hostile businessmen who think they're better than she is because she's a woman. You think Lydia faced a little adversity in her life? You better believe it. But you know what? She owned that responsibility. Life wasn't peachy king for Miss Lydia just because she knew about God. And we're going to see later on that the same thing occurs. She has unique challenges in who she was. Perhaps she was single, but more than likely the fact that she has a household, we know that she more than likely was married and she was widowed. But here's what we know about Lydia. And the same thing can be true for you and I. When you seek God, he will make his presence known. When you seek God, he will make his presence known. Folks, that's, the scripture tells us all about that. Seek and you will find. Knock and I will answer. I behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone let me in, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. I remember that beautiful image of the door as people have tried to, over the years, portray what that Revelation 3.21 passage, behold, I stand at the door and knock, looks like. And in almost every image, we see Jesus standing on the outside of the door knocking. But that door doesn't have a doorknob on the outside. The only knob is on the inside. You see, we have to make the choice that when we seek God, he'll make his presence known. But we have to choose to let him into our life. Now, I'm going to share with you something else in the next passage of Scripture. It's going to sound a little contradictory, but I want to share a word to the righteous. Those of us who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, who have already been baptized in the waters of repentance and baptism that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me share with you a word. Notice in the second sentence of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, why do I share with that, that with you? Because the Holy Spirit does the work of salvation. The Holy Spirit does the work of salvation. Folks, I believe too often we get caught up around the axle in the church thinking that it's our responsibility to get people saved. Folks, let me tell you the truth of what our responsibility is. We see it clearly in the Great Commission. Whether you're reading it in Mark 16, 3, you're reading it in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore unto all nations, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you to the end of the day. Folks, our responsibility is to share the gospel. Our responsibility is just like Timothy, Paul, Silas, and, and who's the other guy, Luke, that was with them? To go outside the city, to sit down at the river, and to have a conversation with somebody about this Jesus. But notice what the word tells us the Spirit of God did for the woman, Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
Now, we know that's got to be true. Matter of fact, I think there are many of you in here that know for a fact that the Holy Spirit had to have opened your heart because you were the hardest, stubbornest, most rebellious person there would have been before Christ. And I'll try not to look at any of you, right? I keep my eyes down. But we know that's the deal. If it was on me to do it, nah. But we know that the Holy Spirit got a hold of our heart. And because of that, God led us into salvation. God allowed us. God called us. Let me flesh that out a little bit more for you. Words matter, but God's word matters a little bit more. Would you agree with that statement? Words matter, but God's word matters more. So number one, how do we look at this and understand how God opened the heart of Lydia? Number one, God's word does his work. We see that right here in this text, that it was the work of God that opened the heart of the people that heard the word of God. So first comes the word, then comes the work of the spirit. Right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. So we see the spirit at work. But number two, God's spirit guides us in this truth. You can write down in your Bibles, in your margins of verse of scripture, John 16, 13 through 15. Let me read this for you about the spirit guiding us in truth. Jesus would talk about his, or his ascension and his leaving his disciples. But here's what he said the Holy Spirit would do. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Folks, isn't that a wonderful thing? The Holy Spirit guides us in truth, and we can understand what truth is. We don't have to respond like Pontius Pilate when he asked Jesus, what is truth? Folks, the Holy Spirit guides us to know what's true. And without a spiritual awakening, and those who still wonder whether there is or isn't a God, folks, in order to know God's will for your life, there has to be a birth of a spiritual awakening in your life where the Holy Spirit now guides you as much as he's doing with Lydia. He guides us each and every day. God's the Spirit guides us in truth. But thirdly, salvation comes by listening and learning to God. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. You, I, 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 I see you twitching already in your seats theologically, right? How, how can you say that salvation comes by listening and learning? Let me share John 6, 44 and 45 with you. You ready? Write, write this down in your margins. No one can come to me unless the... No, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So forget about self-help, folks. You can't get salvation on your own. God has to call you into that relationship, right? And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, it's John six forty-five. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Y'all catch that part? You see, Lydia is experiencing this firsthand. She is learning about God. She is listening and learning what Paul is sharing with her about the Messiah. And even Jesus said, those who listen and learn from the Father will come to me. What a beautiful understanding that salvation comes by listening and learning about who Jesus is and why we need him. Why? For God demonstrated his love for you and I, that yet while I was a sinner, he died on the cross of Calvary. Why would this man have to take on our sin? Because scripture tells us, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
For it is appointed once for a man to die and then judgment. Why would this Jesus come? And you believe, I believe that's the conversation that the Apostle Paul was having with Lydia on the outside. She was learning and listening to the truth that for without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. You see, the high priest would offer atonement for sin every year. Now let that sink in for a minute. Why would he do it every year? Because it was never once and finished. You'd have to constantly, perpetually go back. Oh, but Hebrews chapter 8, we have, a, we have a high priest that's greater than any of those who once and for all brought salvation to the world. No offerings having to continue to be renewed. How do we know that? Jesus himself, when he was on the cross of Calvary, one of his last words, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done, and Lydia is being brought into all of this and understanding that God's word does his work, that the spirit guides her in truth, that salvation came by listening and learning. But notice lastly, even Jesus said, God the Son seals the deal. I am the way, the truth, and the life, period. Now there's two sentences in John 14, 6. The second sentence says this, no one comes to the Father except by me. Folks, what a, what a wonderful truth that Lydia is being revealed to. She knew about God. She was a worshiper of God, but now she's a child of God. What a wonderful understanding. And we'll see that played out in the next, in the next uh, verse in just a moment. But lastly, let me share with you, the work of salvation is the work of God. The work of salvation is the work of God. God chooses to use you and me in his work. But God does not need you and me to do his work. God allows us. It's another privilege of the relationship we have with our creator that God Almighty, what is man that he would think of you and me? God chooses to let you and me be a blessing and to be blessed by having a role to play in his creation. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Why did he create us? Have dominion over all of the earth, subdue and rule over it. Multiply. God had put man at the crowning jewel. Everything else was good, but with man, he said, it is very good. And he gave man a specific role to have a hand in his creation, in leading and ruling and subduing it. And then sin came in. But man, the glory of Calvary is that sin has now been atoned for. And those who accept Christ, like Lydia has just realized, the work of salvation is the work of God that restores us back into the purpose by which God has created you and me, to serve him and to be about his work all the days of this life and as the psalmist psalm 23 says and in the life to come that we can be in the presence of our savior what a beautiful image let me share with you this the last point of our message a word for everyone we've talked to a word for the missionary those who want to share the gospel i've shared with you a word for the seeker that's looking to know who this jesus is much like lydia i've shared with you a word for those that are the righteous that have been redeemed by the blood but lastly here's a word that applies to every one of us our witness for Christ begins or starts immediately. Immediately. There's no gestation period, folks. You ever raise chickens? Right? You do that with your kids, a science project, or maybe you're on the farm and you're tired of paying for biddies, so you start to raise your own. And then every day you've got this 18-day gestation period. Every day you know it's 18 days. You've already set your calendar, your iPhone, your whatever memory device. But your child doesn't know that, do they? Every day, Daddy, Daddy, are the chickens ready yet? Daddy, Daddy, are the chickens ready yet? Almost as if you've got to wait that period before something comes out of it. Folks, that ain't the way it works when we come to Christ. 
Jesus doesn't give you more power and more ability and more gifting when you finish seminary. He gives it to you from day one. The relationship we have with Jesus, the witness that we have for Christ, the abilities he gives us, he plants them from the very first moment where we've confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Our witness starts immediately. How do you know? Let's look together at verse 15. And after she was baptized, put the brakes on for a minute. Stay right there on your screen. Notice what she did. She wasn't a closet Christian. She didn't whisper a little prayer in her own little living room at the coffee table, and that's where it ended. Baptismo, baptized, to be immersed under the water like Jesus was immersed. She was baptized, which meant a public profession of her faith before the church, the body of Christ, and whoever else may be watching. The guy standing on the river over there fishing, trying to catch some dinner when all the women were over there praying. And he's watching. What in the world is she doing out in the water? Huh, that's interesting. He's watching the witness of Lydia being baptized. Folks, our baptism is our public profession of faith that we are believers in Jesus Christ. We need not take baptism lightly, that it's just a ritual. Well, yes, it signifies an outward change or an inward change outwardly that's already occurred, but baptism is a requirement. It's a commandment. And if we're truly followers of Jesus, we will want to be baptized the way Jesus was baptized, if at all possible. Right off the beginning, she immediately had a visible transformation. Notice the rest of the scripture. After she was baptized, she's not a closet Christian. She wanted the whole world to know it. What did Jesus say? If you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father, which is in heaven. If you do not confess me before men, I will not confess you before the Father in heaven. There is no closet Christians. There is no solo Christians. There is no sit home and watch it on the internet only Christians. Folks, if we are a Christian, we are to be a part of the body of Christ. Notice secondly, though, and her whole household, her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So not only was she baptized, but her witness for Jesus, the truth that has been anchored in her heart by the conversation she had with the Apostle Paul, is now spread so much so, so fervently, that she's like a lot of y'all's grandmamas. She wants the whole house to know about Jesus, right? And her whole household, notice it said her whole household as well, they followed in baptism. Now, sometimes we get a little scratching our head apart this, about this part. Does that mean that she just situ- ceremonially baptized everyone? We notice Cornelius did the same thing. The scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 9-ish around there in 11 that when Cornelius accepted Christ, his whole household came to faith as well. Friend, how powerful is your witness for Jesus? Is it so powerful that when you go home, even your children want to accept Christ? Even your servants want to accept Christ. Even those you work with want to accept Christ. The people that are around you see it so much that they can't help but ask what's different about you and they want to accept Jesus because of it. Folks, our witness for Christ begins immediately. Immediately there was a visible transformation in Lydia. Not only was she baptized, but her entire household was baptized. Servants, children, possibly. We don't know exactly what age these would have been, but we know the point being her whole household was baptized. But secondly, notice immediately she opens her home. Immediately there's this spirit of hospitality that comes upon her now as a member of the household of God. It's no longer all about me, 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 me. Now she's like, no, 
open hands. We're part of the same family. And Paul and his companions would stay with them a little bit more. Paul would write to the Roman church in Romans 12, 13, reminding the church to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You see, this letter was written around somewhere between 50 and 52. We have the dating that comes later on that we see in Acts chapter 18. But somewhere around 50 to 52, Paul writes this prior to his writing the epistle to the Romans. You see, he's already living in a recipient of the hospitality that the gospel is revealing. And he's writing this now, having sought from Lydia, Lydia knowing that we're part of the household of God. And he reminds the Roman church later on to be just as hospitable, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality, Romans 12, 13. Third John, John would write this. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out of their sake for the name, accepting nothing for the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You wonder why sometimes when we have an opportunity to support a missionary to Israel or to Honduras or to whatever the next country may be that knocks on our door and God plants a seed in our heart to write them a check to help support their ministry. Folks, we're being faithful to the very thing that God tells us to do. He says, therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. First John, or third John 5, 8. That's why we do it, because we have a spirit of hospitality. Now, where did the spirit of hospitality originate? I think Lydia, and I think any one of us that truly reflect upon it, why do we do what we do for Jesus? Because we realize the great feat of what needed to be done for me. We realize just how much Jesus gave on the cross of Calvary, that he would give up his only life. He would give up life. God would give his only son so that you and I might be saved. Folks, we don't have a single possession that could count with what God has done for us. I believe the hospitality stems out of a place of love and gratitude that we have for the work that God has done in our life. Immediately, she opens her home and hospitality. She doesn't say, well, we need to wait a year and see if it's really true. She doesn't say, well, let me, let, me, let me wait a little bit and make sure I can trust them in my home, you know, because i got good silver and the candelabras and those things. I don't want them to walk off. They're, they're pretty, pretty important to me. Immediately, she began to trust God, and she opens her homes to other believers. Thirdly, her insistence was undeniable. Notice in verse 15 at the end that Luke records this. She prevailed upon us. Here's another good way of saying that this dealer of purple linen knew how not to take no for an answer. She was going to get her way. She was going to close the deal, and she was going to make sure that the, the apostle and his disciples that were with him stayed at her home. She prevailed upon us, urged them, begged them, pleaded, said, if you consider me faithful, stay in my home. What a wonderful thing. Let me close and, and share this statement with you. Your witness for Christ starts new every morning. Every morning, we get a chance to be a witness for Christ. Every morning, you and I get a new opportunity. When the revelation of God and the sun rises and we see that, we wake up and our feet hit the ground and we get that third cup of coffee in us, we know that today is a new day. Forget about yesterday. It's in the past. You'll never get it back. But today, I can honor the Lord with my actions.
Today, he loves me as much as he loved me the day he saved me. Today, he loves me as much as he will love me tomorrow in my perfect state, which we know will never happen. Today, God loves me. Today, I can serve him. Today, I can be a witness for Christ. Somewhere, somehow, right where you're planted. What a beautiful image. So let me share with you, while the headlines are raging right now, you'll see our little image of our newspaper clip. While the headlines are raging with all kinds of topics from Supreme Court justices to presidential elections to rioting in the street to police reform to all these other headlines that we're seeing that are trying to get our attention in the world, I'd argue the good news of Jesus Christ is the message that matters the most. The thing that will bring about crime and police reform is Jesus. The thing that will bring about political rest and uncertainty is Jesus on the throne, not a president, not a congressman, not a senator. If Jesus is on your throne and he's the king and lord of lords, then we can have peace in our life for knowing there are greater things to come. Let me share with you the last of this image. Where do we get this truth and, and why do we anchor upon it? Folks, in the most prosperous nation in the world, sometimes we get so caught up in our prosperity that we forget to proclaim Jesus' goodness. Let us remember, like Lydia did, that salvation comes to us because of the work of God. It is the work of God. And in all of our prosperity, let us not forget to proclaim who Jesus is and the love that he has for you and me.